1622, a vast sailing ship called the Trial was making its way through the Indian Ocean to Banten in what is now Indonesia. The ship belonged to the infamous East India Company and she was heading out there to trade and to schmooze with the King of Siam. In her hold was a gift for him. Recently, the company had instructed all their ships to follow a new route when travelling from England to what was then the Dutch East Indies. This was called the Brewer Route, and it directed ships, once they had stopped for resupplying at the Cape of Good Hope, to sail south of the Cape, and then resume their journey east. I don't know what the nautical term is for that. I'll just call it leaving a good bit of distance. So, leave a good bit of distance between you and the Cape before you resume. Doing that puts your ship in the path of what were called the Roaring Forties. Those were strong westerly winds in the Southern Hemisphere. It had been calculated that being in the path of these mighty winds could cut your journey time by months. The first East India ship to try this new route was the Royal Exchange, and she arrived safe and well and far ahead of schedule. Good news all round then. But then our ship, the Trial, had a go and got it wrong. She sailed too far east, going far beyond the point at which she should have started to sail up north towards the Dutch East Indies. Somehow the trial kept going east and ended up running aground off some islands off the northwest coast of Australia. Looking at an atlas, you will see that if you miss your briny turn-off for the East Indies and keep sailing east, sooner or later, yep, you're going to bump into Australia. Which should have come as a tremendous surprise to the crew of the trial because Australia hadn't been discovered yet by the Westerners. But the shipwrecked sailors didn't have the time or the luxury to realise their discovery. They just knew they had wrecked on some bloody rocks, and they spent a few miserable days on the islands trying to sort out the trial's longboat so they could point it in the right direction and go onwards to Bantam. The shipwreck claimed 94 lives, 93 at the site, and one who died on the subsequent voyage. It was Australia's first recorded shipwreck, even though no one knew it at the time. And it was Westernised first glimpse of Australia, even though no one realised it. The rocks on which the ship foundered are now known as the Trial Rocks, and they are found at the edge of what are now called the Montebello Islands. You might think, then, that the Montebello Islands would have made itself famous as being the site of Australia's first shipwreck. This was where the trial died, after all. But no, the islands have become famous for a very different type of trial, because it was here, 331 years later, that Britain conducted her first nuclear test. In 1621, 
the ship Trial was wrecked on the rocks. And in 1952, another ship was destroyed here, this time by a plutonium device. Before we go on to tell the story of Britain's first atomic test, known as Hurricane, we must ask, why Australia? In our episode so far on Britain's journey towards the atomic bomb, it has all been America, America, America. At times, it has almost been embarrassing to see how Britain cajoled and flattered America. And then, when they were cut off from atomic partnership, how they cried and sighed for a reconciliation. So, having worked so closely with America on the Manhattan Project, and then putting all their efforts into restoring that broken relationship after the war, why did they go off to Australia when it came time to test their own bomb? After all, the Americans had offered them use of their Nevada testing range. So, why Australia? After the war, Britain had been cut off by the McMahon Act from any nuclear collaboration with the Americans. Not just Britain, but every foreign power. The Americans were keeping it all to themselves from now on. But there was nothing in that pesky act of 1946 which said that an ally couldn't use its nuclear testing ranges. Especially an ally from a very damp, small and crowded island. And so Britain put in a formal request to please use the US nuclear test site of Eniwetok in the Pacific. The Americans had captured this ring of islands from the Japanese in 1944, and in the post-war era, it was used for 48 nuclear tests, including infamous ones like Ivy Mike, the world's first hydrogen bomb. Now, we could easily talk for hours, for weeks, for months about the Pacific Proving Grounds, but we will save that for another time. Let's stick to our topic. Britain asked permission, then, to conduct her own nuclear test there. And there was no reply. And so, rather than waiting by the phone, hoping America might ring, the Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, was advised to look elsewhere for a test site. Sure, you can still wait by the phone, hoping for a call, but there's no harm in looking, is there? And one of the sites suggested was the Montebello Islands in Australia. So Attlee sent a cable in September 1950 to the Australian PM, Robert Menzies, asking if this would be possible in principle. He made clear that they had requested the Pacific and were waiting for an American response, but in principle, would Australia's Montebello Islands be okay? Now, I can't help likening this to the the agonies of um, internet dating, which I used to do. It's like Britain is asking Australia to, to keep its diary free for Saturday night even when it knows that it has fingers crossed for a hot date with America on that night, 
if America would just bloody text them back. So basically they were asking Australia to keep themselves free in case the hot date with America falls through. The cable from British Prime Minister Clement Attlee was sent top secret under the codename Epicure. It said, Top secret and personal message from Mr Attlee for Mr Menzies. During recent months, we have been considering the arrangements which will be necessary for testing our own atomic weapon when it is ready. We asked the United States authorities earlier in the year whether they would let us use their own testing site at Eniwetok, but so far we have had no firm reply, and it's not clear when one may be expected. Meanwhile, it is clearly advisable, if only as a precaution, to consider possible alternative sites in British Commonwealth territory and to carry out a reconnaissance in the selected area. The cable goes on to say, I am telegraphing to you now to ask first whether the Australian government would be prepared in principle to agree that the first United Kingdom atomic weapon should be tested in Australian territory. The Australian Prime Minister, Mr Menzies, immediately said yes. The book Operation Hurricane, written by an Australian, Paul Grace, tells us that Robert Menzies was an Anglophile. He described himself as British to the bootstraps. He loved Britain and regarded it as the mother country. Where she goes, Australia goes. If she is at war with Germany, then so is Australia. Here's a clip here when Mr Menzies announced that very fact back in 39. And um, his accent is, uh, it sounds like a very posh, proper British accent. But you can um, pick out tiny little glints of Australian in it. So here's a clip. Here is the Prime Minister of Australia, the Right Honourable R.G. Menzies. Fellow Australians, it is my melancholy duty to inform you officially that in consequence of a persistence by Germany in her invasion of Poland, Great Britain has declared war upon her and that as a result, Australia is also at war. So it was as simple as that for Robert Menzies. If Britain is at war, then so is Australia. And that carried over into the Cold War, when he was again Prime Minister. If she is in a Cold War with the Soviets, then so is Australia. If she needs a place to test the weapons to defend herself against the Soviets, then loyal Australia will step up and help. But the author, Paul Grace, reminds us that this kind of thinking wasn't unique to Robert Menzies, and it may well have applied even if the opposition had been in power. Because it was under the Labour opposition in 1946 that Australia established the Woomera Rocket Range in South Australia. That was a joint project between Britain and Australia to test rockets and had been created under the same principle as the atomic testing sites. Britain is too small and crowded to be chucking rockets around, so could 
the mother country please make use of some of your big spaces, Australia? Be a pal. So the idea of Britain and Australia working together in weapons testing was not a new one when Clement Attlee sent his cable in 1950. Britain had also sent teams out to Canada to scout for suitable testing locations there. Seven possible sites were pinpointed, with the favourite being near Churchill, up in Manitoba, on the west coast of Hudson Bay. This site was suitable in all aspects but one. The sea was too shallow in the bay to bring ships near the shore, and the ships were of crucial importance in the planned British test, because they weren't going to stick it on top of a tower as the Americans had done in their first test. No, the British wanted to place their first nuke in the hold of a ship and bring it relatively close to shore for the detonation because they were concerned about the threat of the Soviets smuggling a nuclear device into one of Britain's port cities on a ship. So the test, as well as uh, hopefully impressing the Americans, deterring the Soviets and ensuring Britain kept its seat at the top table, would give valuable data about a nuclear explosion if the bomb is hidden in the hold of a ship. That meant Canada was out as a test site, leaving us with Australia and our small hopes of America's testing grounds out in the Pacific. Back in London, we were still waiting for a reply from the Americans. Maybe they would allow us to test out there alongside them in the Pacific, and then we could be great atomic partners again. We were waiting in vain for America to take us back, like someone pursuing a lover who no longer cares for her. But she isn't quite ready to give up hope, thinking, if I lose this weight, if I wear this dress, if I have an independent nuclear deterrent... Will he take me back? Not realising that Australia was your true love. And then the blow fell. In November 1950, the Americans gave a firm no. We could not use the Pacific Proving Grounds. So Clement Attlee confirmed with Robert Menzies that yes, we would be happy to go ahead with using the Montebello Islands. And we know that Menzies, British to the bootstraps, was fine with that. But the formal agreement was held back until he had safely won Australia's May 1951 general election. Once that was in the bag, Canberra formally agreed to it. So, everything's set. Let's go. Let's announce it to the public. Let's get the ball rolling. What's that you say? Britain is dragging its heels, distracted again. What's she doing now? Oh God, she's off to America again. Yes, the British decided to have one more try at the Americans. They asked again for permission to use Eniwetok in the Pacific. This time, in August 1951, 
the Secretary of State himself replied to say no. But he offered us a a little crumb of pity. He said you can't use our Pacific sites, but you can use our newly established Nevada test sites. Did Britain swoon and collapse into America's arms? No. Firstly, the Americans had put some conditions on Nevada. They were offering a joint test, meaning that they would have access to all our nuclear data, all the results. But under the Pesky McMahon Act, we would get no such thing from them in return. There were also worries about how dependable the Americans were. It had been estimated that the British Atomic Programme would need maybe six or seven tests. Now look how hard it had been to wring consent from the Americans for just one. What if they, in future, decided to halt any future tests, withdraw any future permission? Then where do we go? Besides, wouldn't it be better for Britain in the long run to strike out without the Americans? To prove to ourselves, to them and to the rest, that we could do it alone? And then Lord Cherwell, Churchill's professor, raised the question of humiliation. He said, quote, In the lamentable event of the bomb failing to detonate, we should look very foolish indeed. So, better perhaps that her first attempt is not done right under the noses of the Americans and their media. Australia might be a more forgiving place. Besides, the Nevada test site, being in the desert, wouldn't allow for Britain's preferred option of doing the test on board a ship. Looks like we're heading to Australia then. By the time the decision was confirmed in December 1951, Britain had held a general election of her own, and Winston Churchill was Prime Minister again. And so it would be on his watch that Britain would set off to Australia on Operation Hurricane, the detonation of her first nuclear bomb. And that is why Australia. I hope you've enjoyed that podcast. Um, Let me thank my newest patrons, Dave Marks and Catherine Finch. They've both now got access to all my bonus podcast episodes. You can join them on patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. So I thank you for listening and we'll be back next week where we will be in Australia for the great big blast aboard HMS Plymouth.